Go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Instead, pay thousands of dollars to make bail. If you can't, you stay in jail, possibly for years. That's how it's been, but it might be changing. We'll talk with state Senate Majority Leader Bob Hertzberg about California's cash bail system. Plus, a look at vaccine distribution in the migrant farm worker community. Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. And I'm Nigel Duara in Los Angeles, filling in for my Cal Matters colleague, Elizabeth Aguilera. Well, Nigel, in a big nationwide game of musical chairs, California had a seat pulled out from under us. The Census Bureau said due to slower population growth, the Golden State is losing one of our 53 House seats, while states like Florida and Texas made gains for the next 10 years. Yeah, and the ramifications for that are fascinating because conservatives have been holding this out as proof that people are fleeing liberal California. But what if those new Californians actually make Texas more liberal? Nicole, is it time for California Democrats to freak out? You know, it seems like there was a collective freak out, even though we expected this. And when it was announced, I was I was like, guys, we're only losing one seat here. We still have 52, way more than any other states. Uh, but seeing everyone's reaction to this just drove home for me that California is obsessed with being the biggest, the best, and the most powerful. And this is the first sign that that power could be ceding to other states, especially Texas, of all places. I mean, come on. (laughs) Well, when you talk about losing influence, what about our governor? The recall officially has enough valid signatures to go before voters. So how close are we to actually voting on this? We're still a few months away. Right now, we're in this period where anyone who signed a recall petition can withdraw their name if they want. And then the state will spend the rest of the summer estimating how much a recall election would cost. So we're looking at an actual recall election probably in November, exactly one year before Newsom would be up for re-election anyway. Oh, great. So potentially two elections in 12 months with all the mudslinging and the attack ads and the mailers every day. I guess that's really something for everybody to look forward to. (laughs) Oh, you know it, Nigel. (laughs) Well, the California Supreme Court recently handed criminal justice advocates a victory when it ruled that people cannot be kept behind bars simply because they can't afford to post bail. Yeah, what happened was state lawmakers tried to reform cash bail for years. And this ruling comes a few months after voters in the state, on a ballot measure, opted to keep the cash bail system as is through Prop 25. Yeah, State Senator Bob Hertzberg has worked extensively on this issue. He serves as Senate Majority Leader and represents much of the San Fernando Valley. Elizabeth and I talked with him after the court ruling was handed down, and we started by asking whether he thought that would fix the problem as he sees it. Well, what the ruling does that's most important is it attacks, attacks the moral issue, the moral issue about people who can't afford bail and people who can. If you're rich and you committed a crime, court doesn't look to whether you're a public safety risk. Write the check and you're out. For someone who doesn't have the means, our lives are turned upside down. So what the court did was it vindicated our argument in the most direct and powerful way. It talked about the impact on families, talked about how California's bail is five times higher than everything else. What they didn't do was to set up a process. Now the next step is what do we do about it? 
But I want to ask you about the bill that you have to set bail at $0 for most low-level crimes. How does the ruling affect your plans for that bill? Well, what happens now, and, and we, we've learned this, it's unbelievable that during the pandemic, um, I believe if my number is correct, the number of domestic violence cases rose by 29%. You should not be released immediately or there should be some conditions or something. We saw the bail industry be able to make a tremendous amount of money by just exploiting the, the, the domestic violence industry. So what we did was, and we thought this is the right thing to do, during the pandemic, the the Judicial Council, which is the body that runs the courts, came up with an idea that said zero bail for minor misdemeanors misdemeanors and minor felonies, nonviolent felonies. The purpose of which was we found that the courts, that the jails were overcrowded with people that didn't need to be there. We found if you just texted somebody, they show up between 95 and 99% of the time. You didn't need to take their life away. You didn't need to keep them in jail. The statistics that Cal Matters just came up with and others about the number of time, the people that are in jail and what it costs society. So what we've done is we, in the new bill, we said, okay, the old bill said we got rid of the bail. We haven't got rid of bail. We just said for small offenses, there's zero bail. And then for the bigger matters, the judge needs to look at you as an individual. That's what justice is about. Not that you're just treated as a number as to how much money you have in your wallet, but based upon are you a risk? What, what's your ties to the community in a fair assessment of who you are? One of the reasons Prop 25 passed and overturned your law to ban cash bail was because progressive groups did not like these risk assessment algorithms. Many argued they would end up discriminating against people of color. That's right. Do you see a place for these algorithms in the criminal justice system in the future? Right now, today, 47 of the 58 counties in California have algorithms. And guess what? They are not calibrated in the way to be fair, all of them. They're not done in a way to be fair. What we did on the, on the issue of algorithms, as we said, there has to be somebody who's an expert in bias on the board that determines whether we use this algorithm. Nothing gets used unless we determine it's not biased. You know, my view is legislatures are all about continuing learning more, improving the law, making it better, course correcting from if you have mistakes. We now know that you don't need to charge all these people non-refundable dollars to get them to come back. You can literally text them because, you know, they didn't come to court, not because they're going to to a um, an island that has an extradition, they, they, they forgot. They got kids are sick. They got work, whatever. They, they lost their paperwork. It's ridiculous. Why do you have to be so harmful? And so the algorithms, you know, the bottom line of what we did wasn't nearly as bad as what others said, but they didn't really focus on the details. And my view is if they don't work, don't use them. If we can make them work better and learn more, We'll, we'll learn more and make, but the, they need to be fair. There's no question about that. And what we did was try to make them fair. Well, Senator, I want to ask a question about that and how we got here, because median bail in California is $50,000. And you mentioned that's five times the median nationally. So how did it get to be so high in California in the first place? The truth is we have this political industrial complex out there and everybody makes money. The people that made money on telephone, pay phones, you know, in the jails and they charge more to make more money. It's just the way it is. And so what happened was, you know, when my dad was an old jailhouse lawyer in the 40s and 50s, you got arrested, you got put, gave $100 to the clerk, you came back and you made sure you got your $100 bill back. Right. <laughs> and now what's happened has been 
you know, you put your money up and it's immediately, even if, even if the charges are dropped, listen to this, even if the charges are dropped the next day, you lost all your money. So a $50,000 bail means you got to scratch up $5,000 mm-hmm. toast to the wind, never get it back. And so it, what's happened is it's become a tool that courts have used to keep people in jail, right? And it's wrong. It's, if you look at California, there's all these different bail schedules, county by county. In some counties where the methamphetamine uh, problem is higher, they have really high uh, bails for that. And so there, there's no consistency with it. But they're really tools where the courts can say, well, it's not my fault. You can't get mad at me. You can't afford it. You're staying in jail. We have people in jail five years that have never uh, on bail uh, in, in California. It was easier for district attorneys to put pressure on copying a plea for somebody. Hey, you're in jail already. You've been here for three months. We'll give you credit for time served. Co- agree to the plea and uh, you're out tomorrow. I want to get out. Fine, I'm out. But now all of a sudden it goes to one of your three strikes. What does that do to your life, man? Mm-hmm. That's not justice. That's not what you treat people. Come on. And there's this whole industry around it. It just morphed into something where a lot of these big companies are owned by uh, hedge fund companies because they make so much money. And it's, it's just, it, it, the bottom line is, the bottom, bottom line is most people, when you talk about bail, they think, oh, no, no bail, you're opening up the doors and everybody's walking out. Wrong. People are walking out today if they have the check. It, it, it basically, we now know that in Santa Clara County, 95% of the people show up, 99% of the people don't commit another crime because they're being talked to. So why spend all that money on jails when you don't need to for taxpayer money? And why turn these people's lives upside down? It, it just doesn't work anymore. Well, Senator, you mentioned this new CalMatters investigation. It found that thousands of people have been sitting in jails in California for over a year awaiting their trial. One person has been there in Fresno for 12 years. And bail is part of that equation, but what else can state lawmakers do to make sure that people are getting their constitutional right to a speedy trial? Well, part of it's just, you know, yeah, according to their report, 44,241 people are being held in the county jail without being convicted or sentenced of a crime. That's three quarters of the inmates. And 1,317 have been in jail for more than three years, 332 have been in five years or longer. Well, if we fix the bail system, uh, um, they, they wouldn't be there, right? That, that, that's just game over. And obviously, the, you know, we've, we had a real challenge with speedy trials during the pandemic when people couldn't come in the courtroom and jurors and the like. But that's a funding issue for the courts. But the main thing is, is just in this t- period of time when you are arrested, but innocent until proven guilty until you're convicted, that window has to be, be adjusted. And I think it's, it's a big deal. Well, Senator Hertzberg, for our final question, I wonder if you could just take a moment to reflect on the last year as a person, not as a politician, if that's possible. And just talk with us about your experience of the pandemic. What will you take away from this moment in history just as a life lesson? And what's this whole thing been like for you and your family? You know, I, I make the best of, of things. That's kind of what I do. So I've, I've done that book, which I'm just, just now finishing, which I had a lot of time to think about. I did way too many Zoom calls that I ever wanted to do. I worked really hard on the economic recovery piece that we weren't able to get much of it passed. Um, I got, you know, and, and the other thing is I am in a beautiful relationship with a woman who is the director of the School of Criminology and Criminalistics at Cal State LA, and she wanted to have a baby. 
And I, you know, I already have a couple of kids. And so we, but we have a, a new daughter, Athena Grace, who's uh, in two days is going to be seven months old. Congratulations. Was, yeah. Congrats. And she was born in the bedroom with a midwife. None of that fancy hospital stuff, no drugs, no nothing, all au natural stuff. And so that's been a, a big part of on a personal level what the experience is. So we've got a seven month old and we dealt with all of those issues during the pandemic, as you might imagine. So it's been it's been really, it's been tough at the same time on a personal level. I wrote, thought, and had a baby. So it's been, uh, it's been quite, uh, quite the challenge. But, you know, I've got this really cool little office in the back of my house, a separate building, which has been a great sanctuary. Haven't been to my district office very much. Still go to the Capitol every week. Um, you know, and without having staff, that, you know, are there all the time and trying to work remotely is, for all of us, is just so much more challenging. But staff still have a job, still have health care. So that's good. Well, Senator Bob Hertzberg, congrats again on your new baby, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. So, Nigel, there will be this push now to set cash bail at zero for minor offenses. Bail hearings will have to happen within 48 hours after someone is arrested, and defendants can make the case that they can't afford bail. But as we heard Senator Hertzberg say, He's not done. He wants to make sure nobody accused of a nonviolent offense ends up languishing in jail before trial just because they can't afford bail. Coming up, California is racing to get as many residents vaccinated as fast as possible. We'll hear about the obstacles to getting shots in the arms of the state's hundreds of thousands of migrant farm workers. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from CAP Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Nigel Duara. As of April 27th, some 12 million people in California are fully vaccinated, according to the state health department's COVID-19 website. That's about 38% of those eligible for the shot. Now, you may remember back in March, the state changed its distribution formula to get more vaccines to lower income communities that were statistically more at risk from the virus. But one population has been a particular challenge to get shots in arms, migrant farm workers. Cap Radio's Scott Rod and CalMatters' Ana Ibarra have both been covering the effort to vaccinate this workforce. They spoke earlier with Elizabeth. So we have migrant communities that have suffered tremendously ripe. A lot of them have gotten sick. You know, many of them say they know someone who's even died from COVID. Presumably, they would be eager to get vaccines. But we also know that because the community is largely undocumented, that they might be less likely to go to, a, say, a vaccination drive or some more organized government or county office, in addition to that, having to sign up online and some of those other barriers. Anna, is that what you found? Has this been a challenge for health officials to reach the community and sort of convince them to come to these more public events? Yes, totally. You know, I think one thing we've heard a lot about is vaccine hesitancy, especially when we talk about, you know, vaccinating Blacks, Latinos and underserved communities like farm workers. 
And in speaking to farm workers and um, farm worker advocates, you know, I found that yes, there is some hesitancy, there is some misinformation, but the vast majority of workers who are offered a vaccine will take it if it's easily accessible. So access, you know, is key. One thing we know is that groups that are hard to reach, you sort of have to elevate that access and really target them where they are. And so, you know, these are people who are usually paid by the hours or taking time off work to go to the doctor, or in this case, a vaccine appointment can mean a smaller paycheck. Then you have, like you said, the fact that many of these workers don't have that digital literacy. So navigating uh, the MyTurn website or a pharmacy website isn't as easy or as um, intuitive for everybody. And, you know, just being able to simply walk from their workstation to a line if there's when when employers host a vaccine clinic at the workplace is one of the things that really seem to convince people to get it. It was just there. It was easy uh, and, and fast. Scott, I want to talk about equity with you. So not only is there potential hesitation on the part of the workers, but there's also been the issue of vaccine availability, right, that Anna was just talking about. What did you find out about that? There was this concern that was expressed um, from from advocates who, who pointed out that initially the vaccine rollout wasn't adequately targeting the folks who were being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And so uh, there was a pivot um, where the Newsom administration said, we're going to take 40% of the vaccines that we receive, and we're going to send those to some of the hardest hit communities, some of the communities that have uh, what's called the lowest healthy places index score. Um, and, And the goal of that was to essentially try to reverse all all of that damage that had been done to these communities in getting them vaccinated and hoping that those numbers could come down and level off. Um, and so far, those, those vaccines are starting to get to those communities. I went to Merced County recently and they said there has been an uptick. It was very slow in the beginning, but they're starting to see an increase in the vaccines. But still, the clinic that I went to, Castle Family Health Centers, they said that any vaccines that they got were moved and gone within a couple days. They were into people's arms and out the door, and then they pretty much had to wait until the next shipment came in. So while there is a greater emphasis on equity, there still is this issue of getting enough. But then also, as Anna was saying, that last mile, so to speak, of delivery, getting it from uh, either the county or health centers into people's arms, that's going to be that's also been a big challenge. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but what about the fact that a lot of the farm workers, as Anna was saying, they don't have access to, say, Wi-Fi to sign up online or don't have the digital literacy to be able to navigate that so that they can get vaccinated. And then there's always an issue of language, right, if they don't speak English very well or have someone who can help with that. How is the state addressing that or the people in the community, the advocates or the companies? The state is working to address it, but from what I was seeing, especially going to Merced County, it's really the people on the ground that know the community best that are doing much of the legwork to make those connections. And it's a combination of like old school and new school. So there is the social media outreach. There are the campaigns on social media to get the right information out there to make sure that people know where they can go to get these vaccines. But there's also this kind of word of mouth, person to person approach as well that health centers and health clinics are employing. Uh, One of those is just simply relying on patients that come in to be ambassadors 
for the vaccine. And I spoke to one individual, Ricardo Juarez. He works at a uh, almond plant uh, in Merced County. And he said he, he came in after a 12-hour shift and he was there to get the vaccine for both his health and the health of those around him. But he said he also wanted to show his coworkers that this is something that's safe. This is something that you should do for your own sake and for those around you. In addition to that, clinics are also relying on what they call promotoras, uh, which is essentially folks in the community who have strong connections, who can be a kind of broker between health clinics and folks who need to get vaccinated, especially hard to reach populations like farm workers. I spoke to one individual who's playing that role in Merced County. His name's Arturo Barajas, um, and he kind of wears a bunch of different hats in the community, as you would expect someone would in this position. He's a mariachi player. He teaches at a school. He's a retired social worker, and he has helped facilitate hundreds of vaccines getting into the arms of farm workers, both with this specific clinic, Castle Family health, but also a number of others as well. And Anna, you're shaking your head. Of course, our <laughs> listeners can't see that when Scott was mentioning the people on the ground, the local advocates. So have you heard about some similar programs as well? Yes, totally. And, you know, one thing that I've heard emphasizes the importance of getting the employer to participate, right? Because when employers host these vaccine clinics, for example, at the workplace, it just makes it a lot easier for people just, you know, to get there. And just also getting that um, sort of recognition and from their employer that this is important. You know, one thing that I found interesting in my reporting was farm worker advocates saying how much they uh, appreciate it when employers um uh, encourage their workers to go get vaccinated uh, because in, employers are really embracing it. Obviously, they want to protect their workforce, right? But, you know, this wasn't really the case when it came to testing. And in the past, it hasn't been really the case uh, with just getting health care out in the fields. So this is, I think, the employer piece has been really critical in getting some of these workers vaccinated. Yeah, I, I was seeing the same thing um, in Merced County. Both clinics were reaching out to farms and, and uh, you know, these ranches were also reaching out to health centers and they were both trying to figure out how can we facilitate this. And sometimes it was, you know, essentially bussing in farm workers, making sure that they had, you know, that transportation when they got off their shift to get to the clinics. Sometimes it was going directly to farms. Um, and then also making small but critical adjustments, such as making sure that they had um, adequate staffing and resources uh, later on in the afternoon when many of these workers would get off their shift. And they knew that there was going to be uh, kind of a, a bump in the number of uh, people coming in to get the vaccine. So all of those sort of critical small things that, again, frankly, the people on the ground are going to know best and they're going to be able to put it into practice best. So how are employers and workplaces encouraging their workers to get vaccinated? I don't think that our employers here in California are allowed to make it mandatory at this point because it's it's an emergency approval right on the vaccine. But are they offering any other incentives, financial or otherwise, to get folks? Or are they just really talking about the benefits of having a vaccine? Yeah, I haven't heard of any specific incentives. They either team up with a county um, public health department or a clinic, like Scott was saying, and they actually bring the vaccine clinic or, or host a vaccine clinic at the workplace. And also when other workers see their peers getting vaccinated, they also, you know, it starts to convince them to, you know, also get vaccinated. 
I also haven't seen any specific employer incentives, but uh, the mariachi musician who I mentioned before, he's actually played at at least one of these vaccination drives. So as the workers are going through the line, you know, they got a little treat and got to hear some live music. So it's a small thing, but I think that's something that reminds them that this is there's a sense of community behind this. So what I'm hearing is when there's education about the vaccine, it sounds like workers are definitely more willing to get this vaccine. Does that sound right to you both? Yes, it does. And one thing um, that farm worker advocates have really been pushing for is to have actual advocates or some groups there during these uh, vaccine events, because, you know, I did hear about some events where there were there really wasn't a lot of a heads up given to the workers They kind of put the workers on the spot. Do you want to take the vaccine now? Yes or no. And, you know, some people have to think about it. And if there is any little hesitancy, they're probably not going to take it. So what you what some of these farm worker advocates have been pushing for is for more education um, to have someone like them at, at the vaccine clinics so that if anybody has any questions, any hesitancy, that they, um, they're there to answer those questions. I think also um, some of these big systems that are in place, state government, the healthcare system, they're realizing that as big and perhaps well-resourced as they are, you know, having flashy campaigns, signs, um, you know, these things may not work as well as someone who sees a, a guy or gal in the workstation next to them who got vaccinated and said, hey, I'm fine. You should do it too. Um, and so I think I think they're starting to realize that, and it's that's a slower game. That's a more kind of methodical game where you have to entrust that each individual patient will be that ambassador for the vaccine. But I do think that folks are coming to coming around to that idea. Anay Bara covers all things health for Cal Matters, and Scott Rod does the same for politics for Cap Radio. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Let me get my mask off. <laughs> <laughs> And we're listening to some of that music Scott mentioned. Mariachis for vaccinations. And that's California State of Mind for this week. We are off next week. Thank you for joining us. Nicole, I will talk to you soon. Have a great week and enjoy the weather down there. I definitely will. It is 72 and sunny every day. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Vigland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Mark Jones is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio. And Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Mellifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health. Sutter Health.